1: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to Elders both past, present and emerging. What's that? Another Midloo episode? Two in one day?
0: Aren't you lucky? You're blessed. <laughs> you have been blessed by us. You, you are welcome you for this blessing. This blessing that we welcome. gave you because we didn't do an episode when we were meant to. You're welcome.
1: Um, hi, guys. Welcome. Um, nothing's really new. Um, once again, thank you so much for all the Patreon supporters. Uh, please buy merch. We have so many funny t-shirts. We do have a lot of funny t-shirts. I feel like... What a bunch of noodles. I just... I still think... That's just pivotal Jess moment of me just being a complete idiot. I think you should buy the
0: noodle shirt because you do talk about it every time we talk about merch. Oh and I just my feel God. like. God.
1: Why, why don't I... you
0: just buy it?
1: Yeah, I will buy it.
0: Um.
1: Anything else to say? Slowly dying inside. Men are bins. The end. Um.
0: I'm very tired this evening because I stayed up until two o'clock in the morning watching McCart's daughters last night. Okay. Ellen, you're going to need to tell the fans about McLeod's Daughters. Oh, the fans know about McLeod's Daughters. It is a piece of Australian television history. It is a show about two sisters who run a cattle station in South Australia. And I loved it when I was a child, and I decided to rewatch it in quarantine. And I love it. And I don't watch a lot of TV shows, and I also don't stay up late watching TV shows because I love going to bed at 9.30. So this is, this is actually a big quite deal. a radical thing for me to be doing. It's also pivotal, Ellen.
1: Yeah. It's there's very, a lot of plaid it, and there's horses and cows.
0: Showing, showing <laughs> just my flannelette shirt that I am currently wearing underneath my feet
1: wearing plaid.
0: <laughs> yep. This is my favorite. This is one of my favorite shirts. Um, yeah. It's quite funny.
1: McLeod's um, daughters, as I informed Ellen the other day, was quite popular in Germany, as my father discovered when he traveled to Germany.
0: And yeah, all well, the TV's playing with Dad's daughters. I love that so very much. When I went to Japan, um, I went to the hotel and I was very excited to watch crazy like Japanese TV that you you see in media and stuff. Yeah. And I turned on the TV and they had a news article, they had a news story about um Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary in Brisbane, Queensland. What? I was like, Yeah, they had the news was about Lone Pine koala sanctuary. Far out. They I do- was like, oh,
1: that's the thing. Like, when I, I used to work on um, Adelaide Street in Brisbane, and on Adelaide Street, there's a bus that goes to Lone Pine. And once yep. I hit about August, September, everyone's like, Where do we catch the bus to Lone Pine? Like, literally, every second question was about getting the bus to Lone Pine. I was like, There's really not much there, dolls. Like, there's a couple of koalas.
0: That is not true. Lone there's Pine not is much fantastic. There. I've been you know, there. You can go and bored. feed kangaroos. You can just walk up to the kangaroos. They're just lying down, chilling. I just, they have all kinds of birds and reptiles. Go to Lone Pine, everybody. Not, hashtag not sponsored. Hashtag
1: not sponsored. I wish a zoo would sponsor us. Oh, my God. Could you? Oh, my God. Okay, that's what we're doing post-isolation. You and I, we're going to a fucking zoo.
0: You want to go to the zoo with I me? I fucking love the
1: zoo. What? Jess, you hate the outdoors and all animals that aren't cats. I don't. That is such a fucking lie. I want to go to the one in Melbourne because you can have the meerkat experience where you can sit with them and feed them.
0: I love meerkats. Meerkats are my family's Okay, like then what the fuck are we doing? Me. We've got to go and do the meerkat experience and go to Melbourne. Great. Okay.
1: Let's do it. Yay. I fucking love zoos. Okay, cool. I just don't like reptiles. I'm just not a reptile. I don't like snakes. I don't like lizards. They'll kill you as soon as look at you.
0: I like snakes. Of
1: course you do.
0: I saw, a, I saw a very large snake when we went hiking at Cradle Mountain that like went up and like reared up and hissed at us. Absolutely and not. My friend who I was with was like, everybody get back. And we like got back. And then I whispered to my friend. I was like, do you have your camera? And he was like, yes. <laughs> I thought you and- were going to say, do you speak Parseltongue? tongue? <laughs> <laughs> No, I didn't say that. We just, re- we, we were like, oh no, we're so scared. Everybody be safe. And then we just like looked at the snake for a while. Mm. Don't do that though. It's not very safe. I would
1: fucking drop dead. I passed that out at Australia Zoo cool. when I saw the snake. They tried I to pass, story. they tried to pass snakes around in the crocoseum. And I literally blacked out. Mm. And then when they've got, they've got this massive python in this big fuck off tank. And I was like,
0: I feel faint again. That's very funny. I love
1: that. I'm such I love a love that horse. story. Anyway, murder. What's the go? Anyway, murder. I'm very glad that That's this That's a intro... funny t-shirt actually, Zane.
0: Anyway, murder. Anyway, murder. Writing that down. Okay. Um, I'm very happy that this intro has gone the way that it has because as I said to you on the phone, this is very much a me episode. Like it's very much about like the things that I like and I'm interested can in. Can I guess, which is... can I make a couple of guesses?
1: Yeah. Is it a scientist being murdered? No. Is it, were they like super environmental? No. Was it on a cattle station? Close.
0: Was it involving a class member of McLeod's Daughters? No, no class member of McLeod's Daughters was murdered as far as I know. This is actually, so I wanted to cover this case because this is our ones that we missed season. Mm. I did want to do this case last time, but we kind of had already planned out what we were going to do. And then we ended up doing the two part one on Lindy Chamberlain. So that meant that we had like one less plot, if you like.
1: How do you say the name of the victim in the Lindy Chamberlain case?
0: I don't want to talk about it. 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 Azaria? Yeah. Yes. So, so sorry to everybody named Azaria and also to the Chamberlain family. I will kill myself. I am so embarrassed. Anyway, it's just my Bogan Queensland accent. Anyway, I want to talk about this case now. Anyway, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. So I was doing some research on the Northern Territory and I, as we all know, the Northern Territory became a pretty famous, like, tourist destination because of the hit 1986 film Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> and I love Crocodile Dundee and I love Paul Hogan and I watched that stupid Channel 7 TV series they made about Paul Hogan called Hodes and I actually cried during the last couple of episodes. Two of my friends were in that! I know, I recognized them. Anyway, so reading about the NT, like talking about like, oh blah blah blah, and everybody came to the NT because of Crocodile Dundee and Paul Hogan, and I'm like, fuck yeah, dope shit, love Crocodile <laughs> Dundee. Found out that Crocodile Dundee was based on a real person. Oh my god, were they murdered? Were they what? Shut up, this is so you! I know. Okay, hit but me with this. I'm so fucking stoked. Don't get too excited because it's not a super cheerful one. Oh, great. Awesome. Love that for us. Is it ever what? really cheerful? No. It's never cheerful, but this is especially not cheerful. So this is the story about Rod Ansell, who is the real Crocodile Dundee. So Rod, like so many people that we talk about on this podcast, Rod was born in Queensland. Of course he fucking was. They're all they were all born here. What, what the about fuck? Queensland? And they never anyway, stay. They never
1: stay. They go somewhere that else and they a stupid indie film, crime. Zane, um, All My Friends Leave Brisbane. They Ugh, do. All, such all a soft boy leave Brisbane. Film. It's such a soft boy
0: film. Anyway, on, onwards. So Rod was born in Mergen, Queensland in 1954. Um, Mergen is a very small country town located 270 kilometers northwest of Brisbane. I've never heard of it. You've probably never heard of it.
1: I have actually, Um, there was a, um, um, during the, uh, stolen generation, there was a big, Oh damn. Um, Mergen, there was a big, um, obviously when all the great white people coming in and just trying to fuck everything up, um, a lot of children, Um, Indigenous children, there was like a a station for them in Mergen. Yeesh. Mm. I big did not know that. Big yeesh.
0: Big yeesh. Mm. So it's a classic Queensland country town. Um, It currently has a population of 2,700 people in the 1950s. That was even less. And it's one of the many regional Aussie towns that are sustained by cattle farming. So Rod grew up on his parents' cattle property. Um, By his own admission, he was a terrible student. He was more interested in the outdoors and he like kept silkworms in his garage and he had 14 pet wallabies. Rock on. Which is a very rational number of wallabies to have. So as soon as he could, he left school at age 15 and he headed to the Northern Territory where he began working as a water buffalo hunter. So Rod was around 5'8", um, although he would lie about as high as a Sorry, there's water inches. buffalo here? Yeah. Introduce water buffalo. Didn't know that. Anyway, onwards. Learn a lot here at Mitlu. Um, so, he was blonde, tanned, and rugged, and he was known he for was. never wearing shoes. My dream so, man. So, yeah, Jess is, it, like, every part of her is cringing. Blonde and no shoes. Ooh. So, Rod worked a few jobs shooting and catching buffalo up in the top end. in nineteen In 1977, at age 23, the ordeal that would eventually catapult Rod into international stardom began. So he'd just finished a hunting job in Kananara, Western Australia, and he'd come back to the Northern Territory. And he told his friends and his girlfriend at the time that he was going on a fishing trip um, in the Victoria River, and he'd be gone for a couple of months. So he set out with a motorboat, a dinghy, a knife, a bedroll, a rifle, a couple of tins of food, and his two dogs for company. Not long into the journey, his motorboat capsized after hitting a massive crocodile.
1: Oh, No.
0: So Rod jumped into the dinghy, saved his two dogs and salvaged a few of his belongings. He only had a single oar to steer the dinghy and overnight the boat drifted off to sea. He washed up on a small island at the mouth of the Fitzmaurice River, hundreds of kilometers away from where he was meant to be, with no fresh water. After drifting around the river for two days at the whims of the tide, he managed to salvage fresh water. Well, kind of floated on down past where the like salt water part of the river begins and where the fresh water part begins. So Rod survived for 56 days, which is almost exactly the amount of time that we've been in quarantine, 56 days. What the fuck? Yep, yeah, out in the wilds of the Top End in Keep River National Park. So he hunted wild buffalo to survive, and he would eat the meat and give the meat to his dogs. He would also drink the blood of the buffalo to oh, stay hydrated. Did you
1: have to say that? I mean, did you It's have what he did, to... how you survive in the bush. Oh, for fuck's sake. I don't want to hear about people drinking blood of anything. It's just fucking weird.
0: So he saw bees. Like, he would fill up, like, a little tin of water for his dogs to, like, drink at. And he saw bees hovering over the tin, right? So he took a piece of cotton from his shirt, tied the cotton around the bee, and followed the bee back to its hive. He leashed a bee. He leashed a bee. He put a bee on a leash so he could go and get that sweet, sweet honey for his sugar. He's like your dream man, isn't he? Absolutely not. Please keep listening to the rest of this episode. (laughs) Um, So he slept in a tree where he would be out of reach of crocodiles, but he did end up having a scary close encounter with a croc, which was five meters long when it charged at one of his dogs. Mm -mm. So he shot the crocodile and kept the head as a souvenir. No. (laughs) Yep. No. Oh, I don't so, like So knowing that it wasn't likely that anybody was going to be looking for him, and even if they were, they'd be looking at the Victoria River and not the Fitzmaurice River, Rod had planned to begin walking to just a cattle, any cattle station or any property once the wet season began and it wasn't like 85 trillion degrees bake-in-the-sun kind of temps. Um, but he ended up being saved when two Indigenous stockmen, um, who are? I've read a million articles about this, and they are never given names in any iteration. Of course, so the two Indigenous stockmen and their cattle manager happened across Rod. So they brought him back to civilization, a little bit thinner, but no worse for wear. Fifty-six Init- days. Fifty-six days what drinking the fuck? buffalo blood. I wouldn't last fifty-six minutes in the outdoors. I have had such a rampant decline of my mental health after being inside in my house for 50 days. (laughs) Like, there is no way
1: that I would survive. Like, literally waking up at, like, 10 to 5 in the morning and just crying.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And everything's fine, really. He was, like, in the wilderness with crocodiles, like, at him at all times. Anyway, so when he came back, he initially kept his ordeal a secret, but eventually word started to get out. So he would later say that he kept quiet because he didn't want to worry his mother. And because men, like, he talked about how, like, other outback men who lived in the outback, like, they'd all had super close encounters with stuff. They'd all gone through dangerous things and they didn't brag about it. Like, it just wasn't, like, the done thing. Mm. But word eventually did spread. Um, Some people doubted his story because they were like... They thought it was a little bit extra, like people would say things like, you know, I've been lost in the bush and I was never tempted to drink buffalo blood to survive. Like they thought maybe he'd embellish some stuff. Um, and other people were like questioning why he was going fishing for such a long time. And eventually Rod would confess to some friends that he wasn't actually going fishing, that he was planning on poaching crocodiles, which was a crime that would fetch a two thousand dollar fine. But anyway, word about the experience spread around the Northern Territory, then eventually to the news and eventually to the world. A a documentary filmmaker called Richard Oxenbrough made a film called To Fight the Wild about Rod's adventure. That was later turned into a book that Rod co-wrote and you can buy for the low, low price of $143.91 on Amazon. So I did not buy it and I did not read it. In 1981, renowned English journalist Parkinson came calling. So this is when like he became like I big Fucking favorite. love Parkinson. I know, right? I fucking um, love Parkinson. So Rod had been sleeping rough in a camp when Parkinson's people came calling. They picked him up and took him to the airport so he could fly to Sydney for the interview. When he got to the airport, he was told by airport staff that he had to wear shoes on the plane. Oh, well, So he, he would go and like buy that. a pair of thongs that he used to walk across the tarmac and then threw them when he was on board. So he recounted the tale of his his adventure to Parkinson and audiences were just like thrilled by this like magically stereotypical version of what like an Aussie Bushman was like. He also told Parkinson about how he had chosen to sleep on the, in his bedroll on the floor of the five-star hotel that the company had put him up in and how he was mystified by the bidet in the hotel toilet. So people all over the world tuned in to watch this interview, including Mr. Paul Hogan. So soon after this interview aired, uh, Hogues and his writing team began work on what would become Crocodile Dundee. So Rod had had fun with his brush with fame, but he returned to the Northern Territory to begin working again. He'd met a woman named Joanne Van Ost just after his little adventure in 1977, and they'd married and had two sons. In 1985, they bought a pastoral, a pastoral property in Northern Arnhem Land, which he called Melaleuca. The property was 60,000 hec- 60, acres. I've written 60,000 hectares. That is not true. It is 60,000 acres. <laughs> 60,000 hectares is like very large. It's 60,000 acres. <laughs> Adjacent to Kakadu National Park. And in exchange for the cheap land, Rod was charged with removing the wild water buffalo from the land and replacing it with a domestic herd. Buffalo catching was in Rod's blood. He'd done it since he was 15, but it was backbreaking work. Still, for a time, he, Joanne, and their sons Callum and Sean enjoyed their lives at Melaleuca. In 1986, Crocodile Dundee was released. Paul Hogan was already a pretty big deal in Australia. But the Americans went buck-fucking-wild <laughs> for this movie. They could not get enough. At the time, it was Australia's highest-grossing gross- film ever, and I'm pretty sure it might still be the highest-grossing, if not that, the highest-grossing Australian film. That just goes like, to show 70s. about our
1: cinema. It's fucked.
0: It's a good movie. Is it? Yes. No. Uh-huh. Um, so it made over $300 million on a $10 million budget. And that's $986. Like, that's like, that's like $8 billion at the, this point in time. So as I said, the film sparked Aussie fever across the, across the globe and brought thousands of tourists to Australia and specifically the Top End. Eventually, a few people in the territory who knew Rod saw a few similarities between Rod and Mick Dundee and got him on the radio to let him know. So the story about, like, getting mystified by the hotel bidet and sleeping on the bedroll in the hotel were, like, obvious copies of Rod's story. And there was a few other similarities. So like Nick Dundee, um, Rod was accepted by the indigenous people of Arnhem Land and he spoke, free- he spoke fluent Urapanga. There were also the physical similarities. They were tan, blonde, and muscly and ambivalent about usual standards of dress. So Rod and his family took a rare trip into town to see the film, which Rod called good fun. Aww, he had a good attitude him. about hoagues using a story and likeness to get filthy rich for a time. So a bit later on in 1986, Rod and a friend of his, a man named Dominic Mansell, who Rod had picked up while hitchhiking, um, had the idea to set up an adventure touring business. So how better to ride the Aussie Tourism wave than starting a company with the quote real McDundee? It was a license to print money. So Rod got in contact with Paul Hogan's office in Sydney to ask for permission. And he got a letter back from Hogan's business partner and the letter basically said, sorry, but if you use the words Crocodile Dundee in any form of advertising, Paramount Pictures is going to come and fuck you for every penny you've got, basically. So Rod um, asked for permission again and just kind of said, what if I signed away any right to royalties? What if I was just able to use the phrase for advertising and I wouldn't make any money off it." And basically the answer again was like, no, not unless you want a massive legal battle. So Rod, with a very Aussie attitude, thought, fuck it, let's do it anyway. Um, and they like went ahead with the business, but it never ended up really getting off the ground, partly because Paramount was like, I just did that, I'm watching you <laughs> hand gesture to Jess, which obviously you cannot see. <laughs> so that was a blow, but Rod's bad luck was not going to end there. So in the 1970s before any of this really started international cattle prices plummeted as a result of bovine brucellosis and bovine tuberculosis. So as a nation whose economy depends not solely but like a lotly on cattle, <laughs> Australia was was spooked. So A really intense program that was nationwide was started called um, BTEC or the Brucellosis and Tuberculosis Eradication Campaign. Uh, That's a lot of words. Brucellosis and Tuberculosis Eradication Campaign. So that was started to prevent basically Australia going into like a cattle-specific recession. Mm. Um, So every landowner or every like cattle person um, had to manage their cattle to prevent brucellosis and tuberculosis. So that would mean either vaccinating your stocks or eradicating any cattle that had been exposed to disease or had the potential to spread the disease or anything like that. So this was a, like a massive, as I said, it started in the 1970s and went on at this point in time. We're in like 1980, 1990-something, 1990, um, 1990, in fact. Um So, Rod was forced to eradicate 3,000 heads of cattle from his property, and he was never awarded any government compensation from the loss. So, obviously, the government can't tell you, hey, can you just, like, shoot your livelihood for us, thanks, bye. Like, they would give, they would buy, essentially, like, the cattle that people were forced to get rid of, but Rod never received any compensation money. And shortly after that, uh, Melaleuca was devastated by, by an infestation of Mimosa pigra, which is an invasive weed that spreads particularly well in like, wet conditions, and he was living in the floodplain of the Kakadu National Park, so the, the weeds just took the fuck over. And as he hadn't really turned much profit from Melaleuca because of the whole BTEC thing, with, amongst other issues, he just didn't have the money to fight the weeds. So, you know, the, the cost, like, it's not like getting your fork out and taking the wigs out, like the cost of removing weeds from 60,000 acres of property, it would be in the millions of dollars, and he just didn't have the money. So he was forced to sell the cattle station in 1991. Joanne and Rod's marriage didn't survive the loss, and they ended up divorcing a short time later. Aww. So Rod was mad at the territory government for not compensating him. He was pretty not pleased with Paul Hogan for not letting him make any money. Um, He was unemployed, depressed, and back to living in makeshift accommodation and camps. He was also growing and smoking a lot of marijuana. In 1992, Rod would be convicted of cattle rustling and assaulting a station manager, and was fined over $8,000 for the two crimes. Again, money that he didn't have. Eventually, Rod began using methamphetamine. And this is the point in the story where this becomes an episode of Murder in the Land of Oz, and not just us chatting about stuff. Um, so in 1996, Rod met and began dating a woman named named Sherry Hewson. So they met when Sherry answered an ad that Rod had posted looking for somebody to help him break horses as like a side hustle. So Sherry went out to his camp and they began working together and they ended up, she ended up staying with him and dating. So they lived together at Urupunga Station, which is an indigenous operated cattle station in Arnhem Land. They first lived in a house and then ended up living in a makeshift camp. Sherry was also a meth user, and over time, the couple's drug usage became much worse. Friends abroad knew that he was using, and he would have have occasional episodes of paranoia, psychosis, and impulsivity, and over time, his friends said that his personality and his general ability to function had declined significantly. Sherry was delusional, so she had created this reality wherein she had been abused, this is whack, but she had been abused by Freemasons as a child, and had been forced to participate in, like, child sacrifices and, like, other kind of cult initiation rites and stuff like that. So okay. she, she believed that her whole family and everybody that she grew up with in her town were Freemasons, and they were all out to get her, basically, for, like, for leaving them, for being a part of these child sacrifices and stuff. Anyway, it's wackadoo. So eventually, this delusion took a hold of Rod as well. So they were convinced that the Freemasons were hunting them and they saw signs of persecution everywhere. So Rod eventually came to believe that the Freemasons were threatening the safety of his sons and these delusions drove him wild to the point where he was not sleeping. He was hypervigilant and obsessive. In August of 1999, these shared delusions exploded. So Sherry and Rod were at their camp in Urupanga and there were a group of men who were three hunters congregating near their camp. They had bow hunting equipment and night vision goggles. To Sherry and Rod, these people were Freemasons, come to hunt Sherry and do damage to Rod's sons. So Sean and Callum were staying with Sherry and Rod at the camp, but Callum had gone off into town. Um, So Rod sent Sean to go and get Callum, but Sean never came back. So Sherry and Rod tried to contact Sean's girlfriend, um, people at the local school and the police, but they couldn't really get in contact with anybody. So to Sherry and Rod, this seemed like definitive evidence that the boys had been kidnapped by Freemasons. Um, I'm saying boys, they're 18 and 20 years old, so they're not children, they're like young adults, but still. So Sherry and Rod decided to head into town to begin searching. So firstly, they went to the house of some friends, the Barlows at Humpty Doo. Um, They told the Barlows that Callum and Sean had been captured by Freemasons and asked if they could swap vehicles with them so the Freemasons wouldn't be able to identify their vehicle. Mm -hmm. The Barlows declined this request. (laughs) They then went on to another friend's house and asked him also to switch vehicles and he also said, like, no. No. Um, So they continued to drive on into town. They stopped at the father of Sean's Sean's girlfriend's house um, and Rod and Sherry suspected that this man was a Freemason. So they kept watch on the house until dawn on the 2nd of August when they eventually went and knocked on the door and asked for Tamara, who was Sean's girlfriend, but um, her father said that she wasn't home. So they hid, like, their car in the bush and staked out the house until the late afternoon when they decided to head to another friend's house in, um, in a place that I did not Google the pronunci- pronunciation of, so I'm going to call it Jingli. Sorry to people from the Northern Territory, that was wrong. So Jeff Stewart was a doctor and he sometimes left a key out so Sherry and Rod could come into his house when he wasn't home, but the key wasn't there so Rod and Sherry just decided to break in. Sherry took a drink of water from Jeff Stewart's fridge and said that it tasted odd and it made her head spin. Rod drank some milk and decided that it too tasted odd and this convinced them that their liquids had been drugged. So they looked around Jeff Stewart's house and everywhere they looked they saw signs that they were being targeted. So some photos were missing from the walls, um, the dog was locked in the shed, the bed was unmade and their house phone wasn't working. To Sherry and Rod, all signs were pointing to Freemasons. They took some first aid kits from Stuart's house, um, because they thought that they could go and like they thought that they thought that the Freemasons were gonna take Callum and Sean and torture them and then kill them. So they were hoping that they would be able to get to Callum and Sean before the murder part happened, but probably after the torture part, so they would need some first aid. Okay. <laughs> yep. It's there's like a there's a there's a drug induced logic to that. Like there's a you know Okay. They went to help. Um, so they then went on to another friend's house. So Steve Steve Robinson and his partner, Leanne Musgrave, lived just off the junction of the Stewart Highway and Kentish Road. There was a large grey van parked on the bush, bo- bush block next to Lee and Steve's property that Rod and Sherry had never seen before, which made them even more suspicious. So they went inside to chat with Lee and Steve. They each had a glass of Coke, which gave them the same head-spinning effect as the milk and the water at Jeff Stewart's house,
1: okay. allegedly.
0: Rod went out with his rifle to check out the van situation. And he came back and told Steve to come outside in case Steve and Lee's place was bugged. So he started rambling again about the Freemasons to Steve. So Steve, although acknowledging that his friend was like, um, crazy, (laughs) (laughs) was persuaded enough that something seemed to have happened to Callum and Sean, Because Rod had kind of embellished the story a bit and said that, somebody had come up to him at Urupunga Station and told him, like, if you ever want to see your sons again, um, you have to bring them to, like, this place and you have to trade them for Sherry because she's the one that we're really after. So he told, like, this slightly embellished version of the story to Steve. And Steve was like, okay, something's happening. I don't know if it's Freemasons, but something is wrong. Okay. So he was concerned. Um and Rod was like begging Steve to leave just in case quote they were coming for him and Lee. Steve was freaked out um but he wasn't roused into action by Rod's story so Sherry and Rod left. About an hour later Steve and Lee heard gunfire. Around five or six shots were fired towards their property one hitting their caravan. Later Steve would say that he thought that Rod and Sherry had done it because they did do it but he thought they had done it in order to convince he and Lee that what they were saying is true, like that they were under threat and in danger if they stayed at their house and that they needed to leave. Right. So two of Lee and Steve's neighbours also heard the gunshots. So David Hobden um, jumped in his truck and headed over to his neighbor Brian Williams's place to see if he was okay mm. and see like what the what the go was. This is also like this is rural, like the Darwin rural area. So David Hobden is like getting in his truck and driving like a few kilometers down the road to his neighbor's house. These people aren't all right next to each other. Yeah, These people yeah, are yeah. fairly spatially separated. Um, so he headed out in his truck and pulled up in front of Brian's house where then where he was then shot at. So a bullet smashed the windscreen of David's truck and David was struck in the face by shards of glass, which caused him to go blind in his right eye. He got out of the truck and hobbled towards Brian's house and Brian came out and helped his friend get to safety. Then... Uh, Brian saw the shooter come out of the bush and get into David's truck. So Brian went out with a baseball bat to try and, like, confront the shooter. Um, but when he approached the truck, he was shot in the hand, uh, not with the shooter's own gun, but with the double-barreled shotgun that David had brought with him in his vehicle. Jeez so Brian Christ. tried to open the truck door to, like, get at the shooter, but his hand wouldn't work because it had been shot. So he grabbed David and they retreated back inside the house. Uh, Rudd then began shooting at the house but thankfully nobody inside um, got injured. So Rudd tried again to steal David's truck but he was unsuccessful at getting it going so he set off down the road on foot, his rifle in one hand and David Hobden's shotgun in the other. Then the police were called. So the tactical response group and um, other police officers attended the intersection of Kentish Road and the Stewart Highway. A roadblock was set up and a detour directing traffic west through Old Bino Road was established early the next morning. Two police officers from the Adelaide River Station, Sergeant Glenn Hewitson and Senior Constable James O'Brien, were situated at the Old Bino Road intersection south of the Kentish Road and Stewart Highway intersections to divert the northbound traffic. So at 4.30am, a truck, dra- truck driver named Andrew Koschel was stopped at the roadblock um, at Old Bino Road when he felt his truck rock. So in his mirrors... Oh,
1: I don't like that. (laughs) Oh!
0: In his mirror, he saw a man dressed in dark clothing standing on the fuel tank behind the cabin of his truck. He quietly phoned his wife, or radio, I assumed, his wife to tell her what he'd seen, and she phoned the police. So the tactical response group then swarmed on a truck stuck at the roadblock, but it wasn't Andrew's truck. So Andrew is sitting in his truck. You can see a man behind him standing on the fuel thingy and in front of him he sees the tactical response group swarming up on another truck so he calls the police and says "Ah uh, yo wrong truck i'm back here but um as he did that he saw the man climb down from the back of the truck and by the time the trg got there the man was gone other witnesses would say that they saw a man on foot south of the roadblock so they so there was like it's hard to geographically explain the area, but they have, like, the main roadblock up where, like, the intersection of the highway is, and then another block, another roadblock slightly further down, mm-hmm. and Rod Ansel is at this slightly further down part. And so behind the southern roadblock, there's no police anything. So from there, he could have run off into the bush and gone, sweet fuck anywhere, and, like, the police would have no idea where he was. But for whatever reason, he chose to stay in the vicinity, the vicinity of the roadblock. So in the early hours of, on the morning of the 3rd, Sergeant Hewitson and Senior Constable O'Brien were stopping vehicles, heading down the line, checking cars, et etc. et cetera. Um, Some drivers, particularly truck drivers like Andrew Kershaw, um, who, you know, had to go down the highway to make deliveries, weren't stoked about the detour. So they just decided to wait for the roadblock to clear, basically. So two people, um, Jonathan Anthony's and Anthony Hobden, who is the brother of David Hobden, who um, got shot at by Rod initially, were among those who decided to wait, because they were going down to David's house, so obviously David's house is blocked, so they needed to wait. Um, So they waited at the roadblock for a little while, then they drove off to get some breakfast, and they came back around 9am. They got out of their vehicle, and they chatted with Sergeant Hewitson and Senior Constable O'Brien for a little while. So things at this point are calming down um there haven't been any like sightings sightings ah oh gosh my microphone just fell down oh no that's never happened to me before um okay we're fine so there hadn't been any sightings of anybody for a while so you know they they get out of the car they're chatting with the police um it's super super hot so Sergeant Hewitson and um, Constable O'Brien had taken off their bulletproof vests, so they're kind of like it's a yeah, it's a more chilled um, environment. <laughs> Ellen just so, saw my face and was like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> um, so they'd taken off their bulletproof vest and then they put them back on and they take them off again, like they're fucking sweltering, like, you know, there's the sense that like, the danger is over kind of thing. Yeah. Um, unbeknownst to them, lying in the bush, uh, behind a dirt mound and a water pipe, um, was Rod Ansel. So he was wearing a green woolen jumper and behind the cover of the dirt and the pipe, like hidden in the... Hidden in the trees, he was perfectly camouflaged. So at 10:30 a.m., Rod again began to open fire. So Jonathan Anthony's, who had been standing by the police vehicle, was shot, and he fell forward onto the ground and began screaming. S- Sergeant Hewitson yelled for Anthony Hobden to also get on the ground behind the police vehicle for cover. Senior Constable O'Brien whipped around and looked over the boot of the vehicle with his pistol raised in the direction of where the gunfire was coming from. Mm-hmm. And Sergeant Hewitson crouched down by the open, open passenger door, grabbed the car radio and radioed for backup from the TRG. O'Brien asked Jonathan, who was screaming, lying at the front of the vehicle where he'd been hit, um, like where he had been hit by the bullet. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan replied very eloquently that he'd been shot in the ass. So, O'Brien's like, okay, shot in the butt, gunman must be somewhere behind him. So, he scans the scrub behind where Jonathan's lying and sees a scruffy-looking man in a green jumper, lying on the ground holding a rifle. The gunman crawled up. Messed out of his mind. Messed out of his tree. Um, so, the gunman crawled up towards the soil ridge that, like, on top of the soil ridge that he'd been hiding behind. Uh, Seeing that the shooter was getting situated to fire again, O'Brien yelled at Sergeant Hewitson that he had located the shooter and that he was going to return fire. So he fired off five rounds from his pistol, which did not hit the target but caused him to, like, duck and cover. While Sergeant Hewitson fired two shots from the shotgun through the cab of the police vehicle and out the driver's side window. So he, like, shot through the police car at this guy, like, through the window and the glass shattered. Very cool. Very, like... Hollywood cop and robber. Very much so. Very much like a police move. Um, So O'Brien's plan was just to keep the shooter down until the TRG arrived, which shouldn't really have been a long time. A lethal shot. But then the gunman fired back. Oh, 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 no. Sergeant Hewittson spun around, clutching at his stomach. He fell to the ground behind the police car. So the bullet had hit the top of the driver's side door, Bullet had hit like the top of the dri- uh, driver's side door and reflected, striking Sergeant Hewitson in his left ribs.
1: Oh no.
0: Jonathan, lying at the front of the car, was in full view of the gunman and he was panicking. He can see me, help me, he was yelling at Senior Constable O'Brien. So O'Brien told Anthony Hobden that he'd provide cover so Anthony could go and grab his mate and pull him to safety. So O'Brien fired four more shots while Anthony ran towards his mate and pulled his body behind the side of the car. The shooter then took aim at O'Brien. O'Brien ducked down behind the boot of the police car, moved over to where Sergeant Hewitson was lying. So he grabbed the shotgun from under his friend's body, returned to his cover position at the boot, and fired three shots from the shotgun. He then had to open the passenger seat door to the police car to grab a box of shotgun cartridges and reload his weapon. So when he stood up again to fire at the shooter, the shooter fired back at him. O'Brien fired the shotgun three additional times. So at this point, O'Brien is thinking like, fuck um and i'm sure he thought fuck the entire time but he was thinking like i sh- i should retreat to better cover so i have better you know i am better able to shoot at this person mm. so he was thinking about nipping to the drain on the other side of the highway from where the shooter was but he knew that if he moved he would be exposing the civilians anthony and jonathan and his injured colleague sergeant hewittson to-, to more fire so he had no choice but to stay in position with just the police car for cover so um, O'Brien needed to re- reload the shotgun, so he intermittently fired shots from the pistol to keep the gunman down while he reloaded. He looked through the open rear passenger side door, out the window of the driver's side, and he could see the gunman lying in place. It was obvious to O'Brien that the shooter was tar- targeting them. He wasn't firing willy-nilly or at like any other cars or anything that happened to be there, but in a controlled, regular manner, lying in wait until he could get a clear shot at one of them. O'Brien decided that he would uh, reload, he would fire three shots, then reload two to minimize the amount of time that was taking to reload the shotgun. And he also realized that it was possible that he would run out of ammunition before the TRG arrived, so he needed to be judicious with his fire. He was also worried about the gunman firing underneath the vehicle and hitting one of the civilians or Sergeant Hewitson further. He told Anthony and Jonathan to take cover behind Sergeant Hewitson, who at least had a ball group bulletproof vest to protect him Mm. so from his cover point behind the rear wheel o'brien continued to fire at the gunman although the gunman was well protected in his hiding spot and o'brien didn't think his odds of actually hitting him were good Um, he needed to reload the shotgun again and he asked anthony to keep an eye on the gunman's position while he did so then anthony said that the gunman was beginning to crawl towards them o'brien looked up and indeed saw the gunman quote wriggling forward O'Brien yelled for Anthony to get down and shot again three times. The gunman shot back, and O'Brien heard a noise like a match being struck by the side of his head, the sound of a bullet just barely missing him. As O'Brien reloaded his shotgun again, he finally, finally heard the sound of the TRG vehicles approaching from the north. So the members of the TRG could see O'Brien firing from the cover of the police car, and they could see Sergeant Hewittson's body lying on the road, but they couldn't see the gunmen. Because the like soil mound cover was higher um, on that like south facing side, so he was totally covered from the view of the TRG. Two of the TRG vehicles when they drove into the into the zone like had a crash, and like the 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 back car hit the second car and flipped over onto its side, Jesus. which is like not ideal when you're coming in to rescue people. Um, but other members of the TRG were yelling at O'Brien like, "Where is he? Where is he? Like, show us where this." guy is. So O'Brien is pointing in the gunman's direction, but then he realises that the TRG can't see where the gunman actually is. Then O'Brien saw the gunman rise up onto his knees and direct his shotgun towards the direction of the TRG. Uh -uh. His attention was no longer on O'Brien, so no longer under direct threat of being shot at, O'Brien could take time to properly aim. He fired two rapid shots, one at the gunman's head and one at his torso. The gunman fell to the ground, but he was still moving. O'Brien fired one more shot, and then the gunman finally stopped. Not realising that the shooter had actually been taken out, the TRG was still asking O'Brien for a position. So O'Brien, like, kept the shotgun aimed at the body and walked towards where the shooter lay, and the TRG moved as well, arriving at the same position. He'd been shot
1: in the stomach.
0: What? The guy that shot him.
1: He'd been shot in the stomach, and he was walking towards
0: no. The gunman. No, No. the guy who shot that him was in the another stomach guy. is lying behind the police car. Right, okay, yes, I'm um, yeah, yep. Yeah. So Rod Ansel was lying face down, immobile, in the dirt. The TRG then took control of the situation and O'Brien was able to return to Sergeant Hewitson, who he was still lying on the roadway, unconscious and barely breathing. There was blood all over his left side. O'Brien tried to wake Sergeant Hewitson up, but was unable to do so. Eventually, the TRG took over there too to tend to his injuries and O'Brien was told he could leave the area. The whole ordeal had lasted less than five minutes. Holy shit! Mm-hmm. It was between three and four minutes long. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. That is fucking terrifying. Honestly, reading about Sergeant O'Brien and, like, his thought process when he was doing all of these things, like, I'm like, you could give me one million years and all the tactical response training in the entire world and I would never be able to think like that. No, 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 no. He was just so quick thinking. So, Sergeant Hewitson was taken by ambulance to the Royal Darwin Hospital, but he was pronounced dead shortly after his arrival. The bullet had fractured his eighth rib on the left side. He had internal injuries from bullet fragmentation to his liver and spleen, and a 25 centimetre tear to his abdominal aorta, which was likely to be the injury that killed him. The medical examiner said the injury, quote, would have resulted in a high rate of blood loss, and it is likely that the death would have been both inevitable and relatively rapid. Rod Ansell had sustained in total 33 gunshot wounds. The cause of death was, understandably, hemorrhage from multiple gunshot wounds. So as, obviously, the shooter had been killed, there wasn't going to be any kind of trial or anything like that, but a coronial inquest was held into the deaths of both Rod Ansell and Sergeant Glenn Hewitson. Detective Sergeant Sidoli was in charge of the investigation, and he, you know, located and interviewed witnesses to the event, um, including sherry hewson and he had to pass through her drug adult statements to find whatever kernels of truth remained inside of them judge rj wallace was the coroner in this case and i have got to say i've read quite a few criminal inquests at this point in my murder in the land of oz journey and this was a banger it was so well written it was <laughs> very like it was written like a book it was so like you know entertaining is the wrong word but like he structured a narrative. Um, highly recommend giving it a read. So Wallace determined that Rod Ansell was this indeed the was shooter. This was of all the coronial inquests I've ever read. My favourite. This was a fucking banger. <laughs> um, so Wallace determined that Rod Ansell was indeed the shooter, and that the shooting had been motivated by his methamphetamine-induced belief that Freemasons were targeting his girlfriend and his children. Testing oh, showed, um, like blood tests taken after the shooting showed that he had 0.6 megagrams per litre of amphetamine and 0.24 megale- megagrams per litre of methyl amphetamine in his bloodstream, which Ooh, apparently, I mean, that good. means nothing to me. I don't but, know, but that sounds but like a lot. those are levels, they're quite high, and apparently they're indicative of like long-term meth use. So like, right. if you did meth once, you wouldn't have that kind of buildup of meth in your system. So Wallace highly commended the response of Senior Constable O'Brien, calling O'Brien, quote, simply outstanding, and that, quote, he acted with a combination of bravery, decisiveness, and clear thinking. He also commended the bravery of Anthony Hobden, David Hobden, Brian Williams, and Jonathan Anthony, as well as Sergeant Hewitson. Sergeant Hewitson left behind a wife and two children. His son Joe was two, and his daughter Ruby only nine months old when he died. Six months prior to this shooting, Sergeant Hewitson was awarded an award for valour after after an incident where another gunman on methamphetamine, Fred Costin, hijacked a tourist coach with a sawn-off shotgun. He was in the midst of a paranoid delusion that, quote, they were coming to get him. Sergeant Hewitson coolly and calmly talked Costin down, made him give up his weapons, and tackled him to the ground. After his death, he was awarded the National Medal and the Bravery Medal. In August of 2015, a memorial was held for Sergeant Hewitson to mark 20 years since his death, which was widely attended by members of the Northern Territory Police Force, as well as his family and his now grown-up children. Rod was given an Aboriginal burial at Mount Cat in Arnhem Land. Judge Wallace closed his inquest with the following statement, Whatever reputation Ansel may once have had, it is hard to believe that he will be remembered for anything, he will be remembered other than with extrication for the losses suffered by his victims, their families, friends, colleagues, and the entire territory community. So that's that. That's so awful. Mm. Not not the story that I expected to read no. when I was like, "Crocodile Dundee's real." Not not a good ending.
1: <laughs> eep,
0: big eep. I think it's just like you know, it's a cliche, cliched message, but like, don't do drugs.
1: No, don't do meth. Don't do
0: meth. Meth makes
1: you mental. Just
0: don't do it. There is no reason. No, there is no reason.
1: Oh. God, that is so awful. Yeah, it's horrible. Oh, oh, I've got that like brown feeling throughout my body after Mm -hmm. that. Yuck, I didn't like
0: that. You always feel like that after my episodes. (laughs) Wow. Well,
1: excellent work, Ellen. So that was the first of our little um, ring-around catch-up episodes of cases that we missed in our Our going around -around. the States. Mm -hmm. So what, we've covered – Western Australia, Northern Territory. So we'll go, obviously, Victoria, South Australia, Jersey. Queensland, New South Wales, Tasmania. Yeah. So five more to go. Yeah. And then so we'll begin the new era of Mitlu. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you all so much for your support um, during this COVID crisis. Uh, hope you all are staying safe and staying well, um, doing the right things. Um, obviously restrictions are loosening up for everywhere except for Tasmania. <laughs> hey, we at might the be moment. Yeah. So just make sure you're staying sensible and looking after yourself and checking in with the people that you love and making sure they're okay. Um just look after yourselves, look after your brains. I know we mentioned in the episode that we also released today, just you know, how mentally this time has just been completely trying for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um yeah just look after yourselves um if you would like to become a patreon patreon link will be in the show notes as always um please send us an email if you have any um cases that you would like us to look into we love your feedback um make sure you review us on the apple um itunes the podcast. apple Jess, just the apple. apple okay th- oh, sorry i sound like an 85 year old woman you do. on the apple podcast app you did it um, again on apple podcast app okay Is that fine? Yeah, that's fine. Apple Podcasts app. Leave us a review. (laughs) Five stars. Nothing less. I'm very sensitive at the moment. So if you want to try my patience, I really wouldn't. I will do an Instagram story about it. Um, And we will see you in two weeks. Okay. Cute. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. What happens when you put three of Brisbane's most talented musicians together to create a playlist? You get the new podcast, Shuffology. Join your three favourite Shuffologists on a journey through time, space, Shuffology and playlist creation. Every Sunday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere where a podcast is available. Playlists are available on Spotify after the show.